This is the Southern Tour podcast, exploring China's modernization through the story of Deng Xiaoping's Southern Tour of 1992. I'm your host, Jonathan Chatwin. We rejoined Deng Xiaoping on the 23rd of January, 1992. Having spent four days in Shenzhen, Deng took a boat across the flat grey waters of the Pearl River. The hydrofoil he travelled by, a remarkably futuristic looking craft in 1990s China, passed the Qing Dynasty Custom House as it crossed the broad mouth of the river. Here, in the days before the end of empire in 1912, passing ships were required to stop to pay taxes due on the goods they carried. Upon seeing it, Deng commented that the era when China could be humiliated by foreign powers was now over. Stretching along the southern coast, Zhuhai is Shenzhen's smaller sibling and another of the special economic zones established in 1980. As Shenzhen borders Hong Kong, so Zhuhai borders the old Portuguese port of Macau, which returned to Chinese control in 1999. It is today connected to Hong Kong and Macau via a bridge and tunnel, which cost nearly $20 billion to build and is the longest sea crossing on earth. Just outside Zhuhai is Lo San Mei Mountain, a verdant, low-rising eminence zigzagged with concrete steps. In 1984, on an earlier visit to the south, Dunga climbed Lo San Mei. Halfway up the climb, he turned around and declared to those accompanying him, we will not turn back. The phrase was both a commentary on the journey and on reform and opening. Dung arrived in Zhuhai on January 23rd, 1992. He spent almost a week inspecting progress there, visiting factories, meeting workers, shaking hundreds of hands in the process. As in Shenzhen, Deng visited a revolving restaurant atop its trade centre 29 storeys up and watched the construction of the city. After his stay in Zhuhai, he travelled by car around the western edge of the Pearl River Delta to Guangzhou, where, after an hour-long meeting with local officials, he was reunited once more with his private train. On his journey north to Shanghai, the train stopped briefly at the small city of Yingtan, it was from this town, Deng's daughter reminded him, that 19 years previously, he and his family had boarded a train to take them back to Beijing after the long, painful years of exile during the Cultural Revolution. Shanghai was the final stop on Deng's journey, and he passed Chinese New Year here, visiting new development zones and construction sites. On February 18th, the day of China's Lantern Festival, Deng arrived at Shanghai's famous shopping street, Nanjing Road, and visited Shanghai's number one department store to buy pencils and erasers for his grandson. As his daughter remembers, one time he tried to go shopping in Shanghai, but when he got to the store he was surrounded by people applauding him and taking pictures. Later we asked him, what did you see on your shopping trip? He replied, nothing, just the people. On the top floor of the department store today, a permanent exhibition tells a story Deng's legendary trip to buy stationery. During an, an earlier visit in the 1990s, Deng had acknowledged that Shanghai had been held back in its development for fear of it once again becoming a foreign trading enclave, whilst the establishment of special economic zones in the south had driven remarkable urban transformation in places such as Shenzhen. His declaration in 1990 that Shanghai is China's trump card accelerated the economic revitalization of the city, and in particular, the development of the area across the river from Shanghai's famous Art Deco Bund, Pudong 
now home to China's most iconic skyline. In 1992, Deng would witness firsthand the beginnings of this transformation. To talk about this, I'm joined today by Dr Jenny Lin. Jenny is Associate Professor of Critical Studies in the University of Southern California's Roski School of Art and Design. She's also the author of Above Sea, Contemporary Art, Urban Culture and the Fashioning of Global Shanghai, published by Manchester University Press in 2019. Hi Jenny, welcome to the podcast. Hello, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, great to, to have you here. I was really interested by your book, which I read recently and very much enjoyed because it seemed to me to be a bit of a different way into thinking about uh, a city that, out of all the places that Dung visited in 1992, has become globally famous. So your book is called Above Sea, Contemporary Art, Urban Culture and the Fashioning of Global Shanghai. And it's a pretty big title in some ways. I wonder if you could just start by giving us a, a short synopsis of, of what the scope of the book was. Yeah, absolutely. So this book examines art and design that's created in and about Shanghai, primarily in the 1990s and 2000s, which are considered the decades of the city's most rapid urban transformation. Although I also reference back to the so-called golden era of Shanghai's cultural development in the 1920s and 1930s, as a lot of the artists do. It's informed by my research there, which spanned kind of a decade from 2003 onwards. And it analyzes various case studies, architectural complexes, state-sponsored exhibitions, and cutting-edge films and art installations. So my aim in the book is to look beyond the global hype that accompanies both the definition of Shanghai as well as uh, contemporary Chinese art in order to show how the city's mythologized East-meets-West aesthetics often conceal historically rooted cross-cultural conflicts and um, tensions and exchanges that continue to persist today. And it's, although it's focused on contemporary art and architecture, um, it tells a lot about the post-92 changes and Deng Xiaoping visits, it's the final stop of his Southern Tour in 1992. And looking at some of the more recent coverage of the anniversary of Shanghai's kind of opening up, which seems to date it back to 1990, essentially. It's actually really only post-92 that we see the transformation really get kick-started. Um, in 1990, Deng Xiaoping had said of Shanghai, it's of prime importance to develop Shanghai. That city is a trump card. But at that point, there were still kind of machinations behind the scenes with conservatives holding back Shanghai's development a little bit. Yeah. And Deng Xiaoping saw that there were opportunities for Shanghai to develop, obviously more than a decade later than, than Shenzhen and the other SUZs on the South Coast had. And he said that Shanghai was going to learn from the development of those first SUZs. And I wonder whether you think that was true, whether you, you feel that Shanghai's development did, obviously was partly inspired by, but did it learn from some of the mistakes, some of the difficulties that, that the SUZs in the South faced? Right, that's right. So just to back up a little, in 1992, he comes to Shanghai. The year later is when Shanghai annexes Pudong, mm -hmm. so in 93. And that that was like a very fundamental shift in the city, right? So it was a vast, Pudong is the 
eastern, it's on the eastern side of the Huangpu River, which the Huangpu River now bisects Shanghai into two sides, Puxi, that's considered the western side, and the older side, and then Pudong, that's the eastern side. Hmm. And prior to um, 1992, it was a region that was comprised mostly of farmland. But in 1992, it becomes annexed and is incorporated as this new development zone. So very much in the, in the line of the SEZs that you just mm-hmm. mentioned, and it becomes open to overseas investment and less restricted trade. And it also expanded Shanghai's size by over seven times. So it really catapulted it into a large modern metropolis and, and cosmopolitan mm-hmm. metropolis. But Interestingly, it's tied very much to Shanghai's longer history. So Shanghai is really historically unique and important in two different ways. First of all, it gets thrust open as a semi-colonial treaty port following Britain's victory in the First Opium War. That's in 1842. And then it subsequently gets forcefully occupied by British, American, French, and Japanese forces. And they carve the city up into various districts, concessions, and import their own governing bodies, policing systems, and economic, social, and cultural values. Then during China's Republican era, the cosmopolitan culture flourished. You also see Shanghai sheltering numerous U.S. and European emigres, including white Russians and Jewish refugees, Christian missionaries, entrepreneurs, all types of expatriates. Um, And it becomes really known as China's most foreign-influenced and modern metropolis and gets celebrated historically as the Paris of the East or the New York Mm. of the West, right? Mm. And then following the communist victory and the establishment of the People's Republic of China in 1949, it becomes lambasted as a bastion of imperialist plunder. Mm. But interestingly, at the same time, the city gets celebrated as China's birthplace of anti-imperialist communist revolution because the first communist meeting that was held there in Shanghai in 1921 in the former French concession. So these two seemingly kind of paradoxical legacies of Shanghai, on the one hand, as China's most cosmopolitan East meets West international metropolis, and on the other, the Center for Anti-Imperialist Communist Revolution, I think really got seized Mm. upon by Deng Xiaoping and the other officials that were seeking to establish the city as a global and economic cultural center in the 1990s. Mm. So distinct from the SEZs like Shenzhen, which were looking to Hong Kong kind of as their model, since Hong Kong had also had a similar history as being opened up as a treaty port and then Mm -hmm. under British colonial rule, right, leading up to these years, Shanghai was able to kind of look to its own legacy and thought, I think within Shanghai, there's the spirit of Shanghai that gets promoted of thinking about it fulfilling its legacy that got cut Mm -hmm. short by the communists can take over in 1949 when a lot of uh, local Shanghainese people went to Hong Kong. Hmm. It's a really interesting case because I think it, yeah, I mean, I think on the one hand it it looks to Guangzhou and Shenzhen, but it also at least outwardly seems to really look to its own past, but of the 1920s to 1930s. Yeah, it's interesting the point you make about a lot of people leaving post-49 and then when the economic opening of it happens in the 1990s, it's like they're picking up once again that kind of uh, continuity of Shanghai's people, you know, the cliche of them being extremely business focused and savvy. And what you were talking about in terms of the kind of East meets West, West aesthetic, and also this tension between different aspects of Shanghai's past, I think is really well kind of represented, not so much by Pudong, which is perhaps the image that 
most people conjure when they think of Shanghai. But uh, another very significant redevelopment project that happened, and which you devote a chapter uh, to in your book, which is this kind of shopping and lifestyle development called Xintiandi, like a new, new heaven on earth, right? right. It, which was built in the style of or adopting some of the architectural motifs from uh, more traditional Shanghai architecture. Could you tell listeners a little bit more about Xintiandi? I, I like you quote Paul Goldberger, who is an architectural critic for The New Yorker, mm-hmm. and he describes it as a stage set of an idyllic past created so that people in China can experience the same finely wrought balance of theme park mm-hmm. and shopping mall that increasingly passes for upscale urban life in the United States, which is a fairly damning review of it, I suppose. Right. But perhaps if you haven't been, you could describe it and tell us a little bit about how it came to be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sure. So so the the kind of vernacular architecture that you're that you mentioned that it's referencing is the local architecture that you start seeing appearing in especially the international settlements and the French concession in the 19th century in Shanghai. And in particular these stone gate homes, the mm-hmm. Shukumen and Longtang. And so these stone gate homes and these alleyways that um, start popping up ubiquitously um, in the foreign concessions in particular in Shanghai. And so what happened was when they decided to develop this, it, it comes about in the 90s. And actually the architect for the primary firm, Benjamin Wood, who was then with the firm called Wood and Zapata, and they were the ones that designed the master plan. He told me that he thinks the whole kind of project came about because Zhang Zemin, the then president of China, was planning to visit the historic site of the first communist meeting, October 1st, 1999, to honor the 50th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. So Xin Tiandi is actually a shopping complex and kind of cultural heritage complex that's located directly around the site mm. of the first communist meeting which is now in an old shukuman that has now been renovated into a museum. And it has you know, wax figures of Mao Zedong and the other meeting attendees who met there clandestinely in 1921. And it's, you know, I think for outsiders that go uh, to this location, it seems like this real striking juxtaposition mm-hmm. between, you know, the heart of communism being celebrated and then this really upscale outdoor mall with global chains like Starbucks and... Mm-hmm. Um, fashion boutiques, et cetera, and also some of the most expensive real estate in all of the city. But that to me is just kind of a a marker of the coexistence of Chinese communist regime and capitalism, right? Um, And global capitalism that's very much both present in this particular location. So So when Wood, Benjamin Wood went in, it actually originally was going to be developed by Skidmore Owings and Merrill. And they gave as their ideas for the master plan an idea to just completely raise this neighborhood hmm. uh, and build up modern towers uh, that would have shopping malls and upscale uh, residential living, etc. Hmm. Um, so Wood comes in together with the master planners who are from Shang, uh, sorry, from Hong Kong, Shui An uh, Development Group, and proposed and said to preserve, kind of pseudo-preserve, a lot of those coexisting shokumen and mm. longtong alleyways. They talked about this as being really the spirit of Shanghai. And you can see east meets west in the facades that include floral patterns that are linked to French 
architectural styles and design motifs, Chinese construction and all this. So they, they made a different plan to preserve these homes and put the retail businesses in them, or at least maintain some of their facades. Hmm. And then at the same time, they completely raised most of it and just recreated and reconstructed in the style of this. So because there had been people living here, there were um, thousands of working class residents. These had become, you know, filled up and communal living spaces that were known for being crowded and dilapidated, but also having this kind of nice sense of community where people Mm. would share their bathrooms and kitchens and communal spaces. But the thought was that since John Zemin was going to come and and tour this area, they needed to really clean it up and overhaul mm-hmm. it um, and turn it into this kind of very clean, tidy version of, of what it could be. No, I, I was thinking about some of the aspects of life in those traditional houses you were you were mentioning. It reminded me of some of the destruction that's happened elsewhere in China, particularly in the Hutong of Beijing. And reading the book, it kind of reminded me, I mean, I lived in Shanghai and I knew Xinjiang pretty well, mm-hmm. but it reminded me that this was this has become a kind of model for some of the things that are happening elsewhere in, in China, yes. the kind of slightly Disneyfied version. And I, what I didn't know was that there were a couple, I think one in Chongqing and, and then... Yes another another Xinjiang in another city in China. But well, it, that's right. Yeah. So the project became so successful that Benjamin Wood started getting requests from other local governments. And they said, can you come in to the space and Xintiandi it, right? Like it started yeah. getting used as a verb. And um, <laughs> there's a Shihu Tiandi in, in Hangzhou around the West Lake. Yeah. Um, and there's also Chongqing Tiandi, right? Which are yeah very similar kind of projects where they're trying to seize upon some local feature that is getting at the spirit of that city and then you know but then also utilize it for a global marketplace towards you know having global chains and mm-hmm. a place of commerce and whatnot so it's, it's only maintaining the local flavor in terms of aesthetics and style yeah i know i was in Chengdu not too long ago and there's an area there that's very similar and you know the hutong in beijing have been bricked up over the last few years and and kind of refashioned into a sort of disnified version of, of themselves and i suppose part of me is torn in a way when i when i think about the kind of architectural development of chinese cities you know to what extent is uh, this kind of architectural pastiche better than having just uh, a generic high rise there or better, for example, than the skyline of, of Pudong? I wonder what, what your thoughts are on That's that. That's right. Yeah. And it actually did for all its, I mean, it, it dislocated, you know, like I said, the thousands of working class residents that were living in this neighborhood did get, you know, forcibly removed in, in many cases from their homes to make way mm. for the clearing out and the construction of the shopping mall. They were relocated to a lot of high rises, especially in uh, further outskirts, like in places like Pudong. But, you know, I've talked to people on both sides, some who really lament the loss of the kind of communal living of the the Shokumen homes, and then other people whose family members were thrilled to move yeah. out of what they thought were really crowded and kind of squalid conditions and moved into these more modern high rises. So I don't think it's as simple as, you know, a story of really uneven gentrification. And at the same time, it also helped to spearhead an architectural preservation movement in the neighborhood surrounding Shintiandi. So a lot of um, those homes, the Shukumen homes that are originals, um, are still located there. And it's amongst the best preserved neighborhoods in Shanghai. 
I think it's always a danger that I'm conscious uh, of that, you know, I'm a bit of a Western nostalgist. Mm -hmm. And certainly when I lived in, in Beijing and the, I mean, the destruction of the hutong was one thing, but the kind of current mode of preservation and, and, and kind of tarting up in a perhaps not particularly long-term way, actually a lot of people I knew kind of welcomed it and quite liked the fact that they looked a bit cleaner and more uniform than they right. had when it was the kind of free-for-all years where anybody could open a little bar or or restaurant on there and so yeah it's something that I I struggle with a bit but it certainly seems to be a model I think everyone thinks about the architectural model of China as being throwing up these enormously tall skyscrapers but actually I think this this idea of the kind of refashioning of older local styles seems to be quite widespread now across right across China. Yeah. Um, but maybe we should talk a little bit about the big um, skyscraper yes, uh, bit of, of, of uh, Shanghai as well, because I suppose in a way it's the most obvious sing uh, symbol of the changes that have happened um, since Deng Xiaoping's visit in, in 1992. And if you look at photographs from the late 80s, early 90s, as you say, there's a kind of screen of buildings on the riverfront and then sort of flat farmland out behind. And certainly if you look at photos, there's some warehouses and some housing and right on the river. But the transformation is absolutely startling when you see before and after photographs. Can you tell listeners a little bit more about the kind of architectural development of that area, which really was started, I suppose, by what is still I, I would say it's most iconic building, which is the, the Pearl Tower. Right. The Oriental Pearl TV Tower. Yes, correct. So, yeah, I mean, I, and I think I, I talk about this in the preface to my book. When I first went to Shanghai, it was uh, 1996. And I just, I mean, you already had the Oriental Pearl TV Tower and some of the mm. early uh, buildings that were coming, cropping up on the Lu Jiazui Financial District in Pudong. But Really, what was the most striking about the city at that time was just the cranes that were everywhere in the sky. And, you know, I, I was visiting family and my aunts were taking me around and they were all you know, really proud that these were all German cranes <laughs> um, construction, you know, machines that were coming in to build these towers. And then the next time I came, you know, I would I came periodically throughout the years, but I think I, I went to live there in 2003. And that's when, you know, I noticed all the, the cranes had been replaced by these high rises all over the city. But yeah, the, the most striking place, as you mentioned, is the Lu Jiazui Financial District, which is right across from the Bund, which is on the Puxi side, the western side of the Huangpu River. The Bund is the old heart of the international settlement that was owned, uh, run by the British and the U.S., and it was built up with British capital and by British architects uh, using very neoclassical facades and mm -hmm. Art Deco facades, et cetera, and stone architecture on the on the Bund side. So it's quite striking now. You can stand uh, there at the Bund and look across the river and see all these dazzling skyscrapers mm -hmm. by people like Skidmore Owings and Merrill and the Shanghai Architecture Group, Shanghai Modern architecture group. And yeah, it looks uh, kind of so like something out of a science fiction <laughs> movie. It's become, I think, a marker for the global city. Uh, I, I laugh because um, I always start teaching. When I start teaching about Shanghai, uh, I begin with a clip from a 2012 James Bond film, that's Skyfall. Yeah. 
I don't know if you've seen that scene. Yeah, yeah, I know the bit you're talking about, and there's yeah, a scene in a skyscraper. Bond, yeah, and he's uh, swimming in an indoor pool at the top of one of the skyscrapers amidst mm. Shanghai's dazzling, you know, Lu Jiazui skyline. Mm. And then you see him in a cocktail bar, which is on the other side of the river, the Bund, which looks out over those buildings. So it's really this kind of face-off between the old colonial Shanghai and the new Shanghai. That's been primarily built up by Chinese capital. You know, it's like on its own terms. It's no longer the Paris of the East or the New York of the West. It's now its its own global city that's operating on its own terms. Yeah, and you have already alluded to the fact that one of the reasons the Chinese government were reluctant to open Shanghai up to the same sorts of foreign direct investment that had been kind of pumping into the SEZs was because of its history, you know, that it seemed to be a symbol of the economic exploitation of China's right. so-called you know, century of humiliation. Right. As you say, I think it's, you know, Pudong is, is held as a kind of symbolic representation of China's ambitions, not just architecturally, but economically and globally. I wonder if we could just talk a little bit about the architecture there because it's an interesting mix of architectural styles. It's, it stri- strikes me that very often the new buildings that, that, that go up, they are looking to stand out against the existing backdrop. So you kind of end up with with quite an quite an odd mix of different architectural styles. Like there's, I can't remember which building it is, but there's a kind of enormously neoclassical bank building with lots of pillars and you know kind of almost wall street-esque but on a you know i don't know how many stories it is 35 40 stories high and then you have some much more bland buildings that could be anywhere this idea that you mentioned about kind of shanghai's the east meets west aesthetic probably is best represented by the jinmao tower which is one of the three really really tall skyscrapers there and the architects who designed that did try and incorporate some chinese elements into the design didn't they can you just Tell listeners a little right. bit about yes, that okay. process. So the Jinmao Tower, it has the 88 floors. Uh, so 88 being the auspicious number uh, in Chinese, um, or eight mm. being the auspicious number. It also has a kind of pagoda-like setback element at the top. So, you know, there's definitely gestures towards traditional Chinese culture that get woven in uh, to these modernist skyscrapers. Mm. Um in the Oriental Pearl TV Tower case, it's said to have been inspired by a Chinese poem about different sized pearls falling on jade. Yeah. <laughs> right? I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think anyone's ever looked at that building and, <laughs> I don't and felt that. Uh, uh, yeah, but it's an interesting, yeah, I, it was something I didn't know actually. That was a detail in your book, and I had no idea that that was the alleged inspiration for it. Yes, that's right. So I think they're, you know, they're, they're gestures, certainly towards a traditional Chinese culture, but you also very much see modernist aesthetics at play. Something that passed me by entirely was you mentioned an advert, which is, I think it's a Dior advert with Marion oh, yeah. Cotillard. And I thought it was really interesting in that it seemed to articulate a lot of what you were talking about in the book, which was the way that the histories of 
Shanghai and its modern version have been kind of co-opted in this process that we'll maybe talk about in a minute, this process of, of worlding, turning it into a global city. And maybe I can just describe this this advert a little bit to, to listeners. So it's it's her first visit to Shanghai, but she has the distinct sense that she's been there before and there's a flash of her being at the top of the the oriental pearl tv tower and then there's the reference as you say about the poem that she she learned the poem the tower was inspired by a poem and as she's on the tower she has this feeling that she's been in shanghai before and then there's a transition to what is presumably the 1920s and there's tango music and the shokuman homes and and she enters this room of old old shanghai and and inevitably meets an attractive man and i won't i won't go through the rest of the the story because it's it's fairly predictable but i thought that was a a really interesting articulation of some of the themes you talk about in the book yeah it's a so it's a short film that was directed for christian dior by david lynch the american filmmaker and tv show director of twin peaks it's very much linked to as you say Shanghai as this place where East meets West and old meets new, like mm-hmm. the past. And so she goes to the, the radio, um, the television and radio tower and there, right. She hears that this is coming from the Bai Jui poem. Now that she hears that it's the poem, she feels all of a sudden transported back into an old Shanghai. The old Shanghai that she goes to is from the 1920s to 1930s, the so-called golden era of Shanghai mm-hmm. when it's under the semi-colonial rule. She meets a handsome man and has this feeling, uncanny feeling that she's been there before and mm-hmm. get swept off her feet in the old time Shanghai. <laughs> she mm-hmm. runs through the city with this lover of hers, but then they go into the future uh, or the present. So then you start seeing, you know, the the flashing lights of Lu Jia's way. And this man who's from the past says, you know, I can't go with you. <laughs> you can't cross <laughs> it the present day. And, and, and then that's that. And, and she re-emerges into present day Shanghai and then goes back and returns into her room and, and sees this Christian Dior handbag <laughs> on the stage in her hotel room and opens it and there's a blue, a blue rose inside. <laughs> I think like Shintiandi, it really epitomizes the way in which marketers and officials have had, tried to seize upon the mythology of Shanghai as the most mm. East West city in mainland China, as well as this notion of like time being collapsed. So now it's like old meets new. Mm. And in the meantime, they kind of erase everything in between, which was the, <laughs> the masterpiece. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. I think it was reminding me as you were talking of the Woody Allen film Midnight in Paris, which of course also has Marianne Cotillard in it, and it's a similar idea. But I guess the difference is that whilst Paris trades off that era of the 1920s and 1930s, although the film is partly about the idea that you know everyone's nostalgic for a different era, it doesn't really have the same um, cachet as a as a modern city that Shanghai has has developed. And you talk a bit about this process that. The, the city has kind of undergone, and you use this term, which you which you draw from critical material called worlding. And I'll just quote a little bit about your explanation um, of that term. You talk about the, the authors who, who write about the concept identif- identify myriads of 
worlding forces, including private investments, intercity rivalries, flashy buildings designed by architects, and autocratic state power, such as that wielded by the CCP, all of which effectively publicise Asian cities as economic and cultural centres of international import. And it certainly seems that description to chime with what has happened with with Shanghai and to to an extent with places like Shenzhen as 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 well. Can you just talk a little bit about how you see that process? Right. So yeah. So that that particular reference is Iwa Ong and Ananya Roy's book called "Worlding Cities: Asian Experiments and the Art of Being Global," hmm. um, and how they're using it and how I start thinking about it and applying it to Shanghai is as worlding as a cultural strategy for a city to project its global status and power. Mm-hmm. And in Shanghai, you know, this this exists and functions on both local and international levels. I guess local, domestic and international levels, so three mm-hmm. different levels. And you can see it most clearly, I think, in big, large-scale, spectacular events like the the 2010 Shanghai World Expo, hmm. um, in which you know different nations from around the world are invited to come and set up their pavilions to showcase hmm. the latest technologies. Meanwhile, China has the most gargantuan one, the China Pavilion, which later gets turned into an art museum, and it really showcases. Shanghai and China's power to foreigners, right, on, a, on an mm. international stage, showcasing how cosmopolitan and international Shanghai is, and then within Shanghai, hoping to promote its again cosmopolitan status, but also you know kind of giving pride to locals that they are now this shining example of China's fast-paced development and can and can really take pride, and then at the same time inviting visitors from all over China to come and, and tour the expo and get a sense of, again, both Shanghai's particular power and clout as an economic and cultural center, as well as China's national prowess. So it's really, you know, a way of flexing soft power, similar mm. to the uh, 2008 Beijing Olympics, mm. to the world and to China and to people in Shanghai. I think it's interesting thinking about the 2010 World Expo. I was living in Shanghai then, and I mean, a few things that struck me. I, I talked to quite a lot of local people who were mm-hmm. quite upset about it because yes, it, yeah. it meant the forcible removal of. I can't remember how many thousands of people had been moved out of the way to make space for the for the exhibition, right. um, but it caused quite a lot of controversy, certainly amongst people that I talked to. But the whole city was completely and utterly given over to it, and the, the slogans were everywhere. The little blue uh, mascot, whose name now escapes me. <laughs> Actually, I don't know whether it was a, a boy or a girl, but it, you know, it, it was it was everywhere you went. Um, yeah. They redid all the taxis, you know, so they were nice new uh, VW kind of people carriers. So it really was a, a massive deal for the city. But I went a couple of times to mm-hmm. visit the expo, and what was struck me was that it was really not designed for the visitors. Particularly, it was designed, as you say, to kind of give this impression of a global city because the queues for everything were so right. enormous. I mean, it was hours and hours. You had to queue to go into some of the pavilions. And so yeah. in a way, it, it kind of wasn't about that experience because that experience was actually pretty awful. Yeah. It's very much about the iconography of it all. Right, right, um, right. Yeah, it's, 
it's interesting. I mean, similar to in Beijing in 2008, they they would really severely limit all of the cars, right? I think you could mm-hmm. only drive mm-hmm. at an odd license if you're like right, yeah. odd number and even number. So it's every other day they shut down a lot of the coal burning factories around mm-hmm. the city. So it the air we would used to joke that the air had never been as clean, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, during the the lead up to the Beijing Olympics. And you see similar things happening in Shanghai. The government was um, uh, sending all these announcements and, and posting things uh, to people, to locals, and they would say, don't wear your pajamas out in public. Because this mm-hmm. is a, a very common pastime of, of locals in Shanghai would be to just kind of stroll out, oftentimes wearing these pajama suits, you know, and they, for some reason, the government thought that that would be like a really embarrassing kind of thing to the foreigners that were going to be in town. And so there was like a moratorium on wearing your pajamas in public. Mm -hmm. Um, And then another thing that I noticed was, so there are all these like bootleg DVD shops all over the city and all over China. But, and so I would, you know, the one that I would locally go to, to get all my TV shows and, and movies and whatnot had turned one day I went in to go peruse the aisles and it had been turned into a carpet store. <laughs> there was carpet everywhere. And I was like, what's going on? And then, you know, the, the guy that worked there said, oh, just come with me. We go to the very back of the store, after, you know, behind a large carpet that's been strategically hung over a secret door into mm. where all the DVDs had been moved. But it's just such a funny, like, sign, I think, of the way in which the facades change, right? And mm-hmm. um, not necessarily the inner workings and the goings on. And yeah, I, I, like you encountered a lot of local kind of protest to the, to the expo in which friends, family, you know, other professor friends that I talked to, they were really critical of it. They thought it was a, a thing that, you know, they couldn't afford to attend a waste of money, um, too expensive lines, too long, like you're saying, and all kind of for show and not really to benefit them. People also talked about the the China Pavilion, which is a this large red pagoda like structure, except inverted. So it's like mm. the top the top is wider than the base, and people would talk about that as a symbol for what they saw as the problems with post um, economic reform China, in which there's a large projection to the world and to the outside at the top, but then the infrastructure is not stable enough, more shaky and smaller than that projection. So Hmm. it's, it's interesting. And I I wonder with those sorts of big um, projects or events like the 2008 games, obviously we've got the Beijing winter Olympics coming up and the way that they've been used to reshape the idea of, of the city, but also impose on the local population, you know, they're, they're, their vehicles for kind of their vehicles for kind of levering change, I suppose, mm-hmm. amongst the local population change that perhaps otherwise would be very unpopular. And in fact, in many cases, still is very unpopular in terms of gentrifying areas or, or you know, getting rid of older industries. For example, in, in Beijing, that, you know, the 2008 games was a, was a way of levering out some of the, the big heavy industry that was remaining in the city. So they're kind of you know they're, they're outward looking in 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 some sense but they're also quite powerful mechanisms to affect social change in in china itself maybe we can just talk a little bit about the future f- f- for shanghai i think this process that we've talked about of kind of shaping it for a global audience i would say from my perspective it seems to have been quite successful in shanghai's case it's the city i think that 
the people I know who know nothing about China, they know Shanghai and they know what it looks like much more so than than even perhaps you know the successful cities like like Shenzhen. Right. Um, but Pudong is increasingly crowded with skyscrapers and. I used to live kind of way out in Pudong, where is now Shanghai Disneyland. And obviously that process of transformation has mm-hmm. has taken place over quite a large area in Pudong. What, what do you think the future ambitions for, for Shanghai are in terms of the, the CCP and, and, and what, do, what, what will change next about it in your, in your mm-hmm. view? Well, I continue to see large investments in its cultural infrastructure and institutions. So the, as I mentioned, the China Pavilion got turned into an art museum that was mm. it was turned into the China Art Palace, and the Power Station of Art, which was the Pavilion of New Urban Futures during mm. the World Expo, got yeah converted into the the Power Station of Art, which now showcases the Shanghai Biennial, which is a really important contemporary art event. And I just recently was talking to and contributed to this publication for a big public art exhibition that is on the new waterfront. So I think there's Mm going to continue to be this sort of building up of the cultural image of Shanghai, collaborations between government with local arts institutions and, and artists. And Probably it's going to continue to be increasingly international, at least in the case of this this public art project. They had a lot more international artists than I've ever seen included in such a, a kind of initiative. So we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I was just before talking to you tonight, reading some of the coverage of the 30th anniversary of opening up Pudong, which the, the CCP decided was November of, of last year, and Xi Jinping went down to visit. And clearly, the CCP have adopted Pudong, like Shenzhen, as this great symbol of the transformation uh, of China. Um, so it'll be fascinating to see uh, where it goes um, from now. I would, in the meantime, encourage people to get a copy of your book, which, as I say, is a very, a very informative read for somebody who knows very little about contemporary art in particular, and a nice yeah. opportunity to revisit Shanghai. So the, the book is called Above Sea, Contemporary Art, Urban Culture, and the Fashioning of a Global Shanghai. And all that remains is to say thank you, Jenny Lin, for, for joining us today. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here and talking with you. Thanks for listening to the Southern Talk podcast. Next episode, I'll be joined by Patrick Cranley of Historic Shanghai to talk about the earlier development of the city.